3: Gallup released their annual Values and Beliefs poll this week. They asked Americans to weigh in on 21 different personal behaviors and rate them as either morally acceptable or morally unacceptable. Don't know why Gallup didn't just go with immoral, immoral, three syllables, morally acceptable, seven syllables, means the same thing. Anyway, using birth control, drinking alcohol, getting a divorce remain the most broadly accepted personal moral behaviors in the United States, Megan Brennan wrote in a summary of the results at Gallup's website. Let's take a deep dive into these numbers. 92% of Americans think birth control, morally acceptable. 79% of Americans think booze is morally acceptable. Pot, not far behind, with 65% of Americans deeming recreational pot use morally acceptable. And 77% of Americans think divorce is morally acceptable, up from 59% in 2001, which was the first year Gallup conducted its values and beliefs poll. Premarital sex, gambling, stem cell research, same-sex relationships, having babies outside of wedlock, the death penalty, all seen as morally acceptable by 71, 68, 64, 63, and 60% of Americans, respectively. Americans, Brennan writes, have increasingly taken a more liberal view on basically all issues since 2001. We don't even get into negative territory with majorities of Americans regarding something as morally unacceptable, aka immoral. Until we get to, can you guess, and deep sigh, abortion, which 50% of Americans regard as morally unacceptable and 40% regard as morally acceptable. But 78% of Americans, according to another Gallup poll, still think abortion should be legal in some or all circumstances. Oh, and porn, also in the negative territory. Oh my God, porn. Nearly 70% of Americans think porn is morally wrong. Porn, everybody watches it. But hey, seven out of 10 of us have the decency to feel bad about it afterwards, Or at least pretend we do when a Gallup pollster gets us on the phone. And at the bottom of the pile, the personal behavior with the worst poll results deemed morally unacceptable by nearly 90% of Americans, married men and women, having an affair. Now, to clarify, this isn't a question about ethical non-monogamy. It's not a question about open relationships. It's a question about affairs, cheating. 90% of Americans say that that is always wrong. And unlike the numbers on divorce, gambling, pot use, the numbers on having an affair, they have not budged over the last nearly two decades. At least straight people having affairs. Gays couldn't get married back when they first started polling on this. But 89% of Americans thought affairs were morally unacceptable in 2001. And 89% of Americans feel the same way today. So all my efforts to normalize cheating have been for naught. My agenda thwarted. The same number of Americans think affairs are morally wrong now as did two decades ago. And we all know, well, everyone who listens to or hosts this show knows that it depends. Sometimes people got to do what they got to do to stay married and stay sane. Sometimes cheating is the least worst option for all involved. And sometimes, in the immortal words of Esther Perel, the victim of the affair is not the victim of the marriage. And also interesting, when you consider that 21% of men and 19% of women will admit to having an affair, according to a YouGov survey, that means a really significant chunk of the people telling Gallup that affairs are morally wrong have had or are currently having affairs themselves. I kind of think the problem here is that Gallup is forcing people to make a binary choice about affairs, morally acceptable or morally unacceptable. It would be interesting, or I would be interested to see, a poll on affairs that includes a, well, it kind of depends option. Given that other option, some point between never wrong and always wrong, I think you'd see some, well, let's not call it progress, where American attitudes toward extramarital affairs are concerned. Let's just say that maybe you'd see some more nuance. Okay, before we get going, a quick announcement. The acclaimed Showtime documentary series, Couples Therapy, is coming back for a second season New York Magazine called it a near miracle of a docu series that works because its filmmakers were committed to making it as ethically as they could. Couples Therapy for season two is seeking couples in the greater New York area who would like to appear on the show. If you're interested, you can sign up at CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. It just takes a minute. The show is real therapy on TV, not reality TV. Some of the couples in the first season said that being on the show and working with Dr. Orna Gorolnik, the amazing therapist and psychoanalyst, saved their marriages. If you haven't seen the show and want to check it out before you apply. It's streaming on Showtime. And again, interested couples can apply at CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Ashley Winter, superstar urologist, joins us to talk about male chastity devices, aka cock cages, and all the different ways men can break their dicks. Coming up on today's show.
4: Hi, Dan. I am a cisgendered woman from the Northeast, married for eight years to a cisgendered man. We recently opened our marriage and as you might say, I am poly by duress since this transition in our relationship has been led by him. However, I have been open to it. We are both in individual counseling and couples counseling in a joint effort to make this work. The problem is this, it is just not happening fast enough for my husband. And by it, I mean, I am not dating enough myself for being overwhelmed by compersion for him when he makes connections. We're just on two different speeds on this path. I believe the reason for this is twofold. There is a history of infidelity on his part, which left me completely traumatized a couple of years ago. We worked hard on our marriage and communication, to get to the point where we're at now. And although I have forgiven him, the trauma and pain remains to an extent. He is aware of this, but almost forgets until after I've already experienced some kind of trigger, after which he is completely apologetic. Second, I just don't identify as Polly like he does. I'm open to it and happy to have the opportunity to explore and form connections beyond him, but my brain doesn't always go immediately to seeking out these connections. Sometimes I put my business or family ahead of it. For example, he was downright aghast when I went on a mom's weekend away that I did not immediately turn on Tinder and try to find a local hookup. Instead, I chose to focus on hanging with my friend, going to the spa, working on my business. I feel as though he rushes things without considering me, He downplays my dates as if they're nothing when they don't end up in a sexual encounter. I've enjoyed meeting people and exploring my own sexuality and independence, but it's still not enough for him. We had worked on our list of boundaries and rules. He seems to bend and push the boundaries, explaining to me that if he didn't, I would never press forward. Like while I was away that weekend, he asked if he could have a woman over after the kids were in bed. And I said I was uncomfortable with it because I didn't know her, I never met her, they had only met once, and the kids are still young. They do actually still wake up in the middle of the night. But long story short, after making me feel completely unappreciative of getting a weekend away, I relented and he had her over. Last weekend, he had a date with the same woman, which ended up in their getting a hotel room, somewhat spontaneously. The next day, in reviewing how things went... He let me know that they began PIV sex without a condom. Now, he says that they soon stopped and put one on. But safe sex was definitely the number one rule that we both agreed on. And I am just really angry about this violation of trust. He does feel bad about it and has apologized, but I don't feel any better about it. My question to you is, where do we go from here? How can I trust him? Am I overreacting? Like, I wonder if our quote-unquote trouble is due to this being the beginning stages of this transition and our having to find our way, or is it the beginning of the end? Are we completely incompatible? He tells me that I do have a choice in it. I don't have to be Polly. He would take care of me and the kids if we got divorced. And frankly, I don't feel like divorce is an option right now. Like I said, we have two young kids. And although I have my own business, we are financially dependent on him. And I do love him. And I believe he loves me. But perhaps this self-sabotaging behavior is really a pathetic way to get me to leave him. What do you think, Dan?
3: So he cheats on you. And then he imposes poly on you, your poly under duress, which a lot of poly relationships that are happy and healthy and functional now began as PUD, poly under duress for one of the partners. But when he gets you to agree to be poly under duress, then he rushes you, pressures you, bullies you to move at a faster pace than you're ready to move, not At a faster pace, allowing him to date others, but move yourself at a faster pace to date others, to seek sex yourself at a faster pace than you're comfortable. Seek sex with others at a faster pace than you're comfortable or even interested in seeking it. And then he brings basically strangers into the house when you're away with your young children over your objections. And then he, with that person that he barely knows, has unprotected sex didn't put a condom on, initiated PIV, didn't put a condom on. And you know what? He'd never put a condom on. He told you that he didn't put a condom on, and then they stopped, and then they put a condom on. They never put a fucking condom on. He was just testing the waters. He was letting you know that they began to have PIV without a condom to see how you would react to that news. And when you were probably, obviously, understandably, justifiably, clearly upset, he backtracked and said, oh, yeah, and then I realized this was the wrong thing to do, and I put a condom on. He's a lying sack of shit, and his bad behavior has been escalating over time for years because I think he wants out of this relationship. Basically, that's what he's telling you when he says that, you know, if you want to divorce me, if you want to leave, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of the kids, and he keeps doing shittier and shittier things to test You to test the limits, to see how much he can get away with, to see how far he has to push you before you finally give him what he wants, which is for you to leave him, for you to divorce him. This is something that some shitty people do where they get shittier and shittier. They want out of a relationship, but they don't want to be the one who leaves. They want to be left. I don't know why people do this, but they get shittier and shittier and shittier because they want to be the victim somehow. They want to be the wronged party. They want to be left. They don't want to leave. And so they force their spouse, their partner, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their envy friend to leave them by escalating and escalating and escalating the violations, the bad behavior, the shitty shittiness, which is what your husband has been doing for years. You are the proverbial frog in the frying pan and it is time to jump the fuck out. Take your kids, take his money and go.
1: Hello, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-something straight-ish cis female living in the Pacific Northwest. My fiancé and I have started attending sex clubs. There are hot tubs there, and I was hoping you could talk to one of your experts concerning the risk of STD transmission in hot tubs. Important to note is that they are fuck-free zones and only used for hanging out.
3: Here's the thing about pools and hot tubs public pools and hot tubs. The CDC did a study and it found that one in six were, and I'm quoting from a news report from CBS, a contaminated stew of fecal matter, urine and waterborne illnesses like Shigella and Novo virus. And and the thing is, you know, with a spa, even at a sex club, and we don't want to slut shame sex clubs. If they, you know, dump the chemicals into the hot tub that will treat and, you know, basically neutralize the fecal matter, urine, and whatever else might be in the water because people are jumping in and out of the water, then the water is going to be so chemical and harsh, it's going to be bad for your skin, bad for your eyes, going to burn your skin, burn your eyes, but you won't walk away with Novo virus. There are no reported cases that I'm aware of of anybody getting gonorrhea in a hot tub or syphilis in a hot tub or HIV in a hot tub. It's not sexually transmitted infections that you're at risk of. It's things like Novovirus. It's diarrhea. It's waterborne illnesses that you're at risk of. And cooties. You If there's urine in the pool, you're not going to get urine disease. You're not going to die of urine exposure. You're just going to get cooties. So don't worry about sexually transmitted infections. Worry about the stuff that you actually do need to worry about. Bacteria viruses that might actually make you sick or the amount of chlorination that has to be dumped into a public pool or hot tub to prevent you from getting sick from those bacteria or viruses that can really hurt your skin, really dry out your skin. So yeah, I wouldn't myself jump in a hot tub at a sex club, but I wouldn't myself get in a hot tub at a hotel either.
1: Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth, Longtime listener, first-time caller. I'm a 30-year-old uh, straight cis woman. I I've been with my straight cis fiance for about six years. Um, here's the thing. I have what seems to be a relatively sensitive vagina. Now, we don't use condoms. And in all my relationships previous, we always used condoms as protection. And so my fiance uses saliva as a lubricant. And... I want to know, is saliva really the best or healthiest lubricant? For example, I get worried if we've just eaten something or drink or drank something right before having sex, or I have instituted a policy of requiring both of us to wash our hands right before having sex. And on top of that, I eat yogurt every single day and try to wear loose underwear and I'm also the kind of person who doesn't like to have sex on the couch before putting down a sheet or something that I can wash more thoroughly. Basically, I'm paranoid of getting an infection, which happened a little bit more regularly right when we got together and I thought maybe our chemistry is just getting used to each other. Is my fear of getting infections just making it worse? Is it psychosomatic? My fiance's biggest complaint is that all these little steps that I take to feel comfortable, that that hurts the spontaneity of sex. And I know you say that in a long-term relationship, sometimes sex requires planning and that's not terribly unromantic. It's just how it works. Is this a bigger issue of trust and feeling comfortable with my partner, with whom I feel comfortable in every other way? Or is this a relatively normal thing? Am I way too uptight? Or is this just a hygienic body chemistry thing.
3: Spit isn't a terrific lube supplement. You know, a woman has natural vaginal secretions, natural lubricants, and you might want to supplement that with some other lubricants, but spit isn't great. It dries out really quickly. It can upset a woman's natural vaginal microbiome, leading to perhaps a yeast infection. So yeah, not great, Probably the risk of a yeast infection or a bacterial infection is low if you're having a lot of sex. If you're having a lot of oral sex, spit is being introduced vaginally anyway. You're also drinking a lot of spit, swapping a lot of spit. So the risk is low. But as lubes go, it's not a terrific one. And we're not just talking about incidental exposure you know, in the vaginal canal to saliva. You're talking about its utility. You're talking about using it as lube. So we're talking about your comfort during vaginal penetration. And I would not recommend it, not recommend spit, because it dries out quickly. So get some lube. Get a bottle of lube. Put it by the side of the bed. Have it handy so that you can supplement your own natural vaginal lubricant with that other lubricant and his hand going to the bottle of lube on the side of the table, on the bedside table, the bottle of the lube on the kitchen counter, wherever else you decide to keep a few bottles of lube, depending on where you have sex in your house, doesn't take that much more or any more time than his hand going up to his mouth to get his spit. Are you being uptight? Well, maybe a little bit. If he's going down on you, saliva is being introduced into your bulba, into your, a little bit into the entrance of your vaginal canal, if you're making out, doing a lot of deep kissing, you're ingesting a lot of his saliva. You don't want to be too squeamish. But practically speaking, if you're talking about needing a supplement for your natural lubrication, spit isn't a great one. Hi, Dan. I'm the
2: tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a straight cis male living on the West Coast, and here's my situation. So I broke up with my girlfriend of two and a half years this past August, um, and I was gonna take the opportunity. I still am taking the opportunity to work on myself and to do things that excite me and kind of scare me a little bit. So I, I applied and got accepted to a volunteer position in Central America. Um, I'm really excited about that. But I met a girl at a work function after my girlfriend and I broke up, and. Yeah, we kind of hit it off. We had some great conversations. So I went down to see her in Los Angeles. We had a great time. We kissed once and ended kind of awkwardly. So I didn't think I was going to really see her again. And I, I felt at that point maybe I wasn't quite in the emotional state to, to be seeing people again. Um, but I went on a, um, a trip down the California coast most of October it was great. It was awesome. and I was texting the girl a little bit, just pictures of my trip. And so when I got back and things were heating up between me and her, I felt like it was a good time. I felt good about it to to try to contact her again. and we went out to dinner and we went to um, a party. and it was great. We had amazing sex after um, the conversation was awesome. I really liked her friends, which for me, that matters a lot. I think friends say a lot about a person. Um and since then, We've been hanging out almost every weekend. For the most part, it's been great, but the part that hasn't been is is why I'm calling you about. She invited me to her birthday party. She seemed really excited to have me there. I mentioned that I was going to Central America in a um, in a text to her, and she didn't respond for the rest of the night. And so this morning, she texts me, says, "Hey, I was thinking about it. I don't think it's a good idea that you come to my my um my birthday party." And I was, I mean hurt and rejected and just kind of frustrated because i i was getting together this really thoughtful gift for her like she's i got her her favorite cereal i bought her a book i was gonna write her this poem that i on really nice paper that i got her and i was just you know I was hurt and so I let her know that and we had a phone conversation and her explanation was that her birthday is kind of sacred and you know she just doesn't feel for whatever reason right that she has me there um but it kind of just turned on a dime for me and the whole issue of me going to Central America has been a problem in one other instance specifically we were at a bar and I mentioned to her that I was gonna be gone for a year and I don't think I had clarified that you know, it wasn't three months or six months, like she had thought a shorter period. She knew I was going, she knew I'd been in a relationship and, and ended in August, but she didn't know I was gone for a year and she completely shut down. And so when we got back to her, her place, she, um, you know, I had to, I had to ask her what, what the heck was happening. And, and so eventually I got it out of her that she was sad and, and she didn't realize I was gone for that long. Um, And she started crying. She felt bad about that, but I mean, I was understanding. And after that, we kind of push through that situation. And that leads us to today. So I'm just kind of confused at why she would disinvite me and just turn on a dime when someone does that. It, you know, it signifies a certain lack of emotional intelligence. I mean, on the other hand, I can't understand her situation with me leaving so soon if she's feeling the, the, you know, close to me that she might want to push me away. Um, but she did say she wanted to visit me next weekend, um, and, and come, come down to see me. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of confused with, you know, all these points, of just there's contradiction and there's just gray areas and ambiguity. I just kind of want to get your take.
3: There's no ambiguity here. My birthday is kind of sacred. Is code for I invited a different boy that I'm interested in to my party. She's keeping her options open. You're going away for. a a year you're going to central america for a year and you know she was a little hurt by that she maybe didn't think you're going away for that long and i think her reaction in that moment when you know she realized you're going to be gone for such a long time was genuine i don't want to cast any aspersions or doubt there but the fact that you know she disinvited you to her birthday because it's sacred but is interested in seeing you the next weekend or another weekend before you leave. I think that means that she thought the sex was great too. And she'd like to hook up with you again too, but there's someone else that she's interested in. Who's more available. Who's going to be around who isn't disappearing to central America for the next year where he's going to have lots of life experiences where he might meet other people have make other connections, meet another girl as you might. And so she's putting her chips on that guy at her birthday party. You're not seeing her exclusively, and she's not seeing you exclusively. So yeah, dude, come on, connect the dots. My birthday's kind of sacred, means I invited another guy to my party, but I'm happy to pencil you in for the following weekend if you'd like to have one last awesome fuck before you get on the plane.
5: So my partner and I have been together and poly for around two years now, and it's going very well. We're uh, generally very good at communicating. Uh, recently him, one of his other boyfriends have gotten really serious and I'm very happy for him. I'm very glad he found this other person, but at the same time, I just do not like this guy. He hasn't done anything bad. He's not like a terrible person. I think we just like don't click and I find it annoying to be around him. Now I haven't expressed this to my partner, uh, like in the same way you wouldn't tell a friend you don't like their boyfriend because it's their boyfriend. And if you don't have to see him that much, it's fine. Just live your life. But now more recently, he's been bringing this guy to our group hangout sessions or just having him spend a night, you know, over at our house hanging out. And I really don't like being around his boyfriend. So, like, in my perfect world, I would like to spend at least the least amount of time with his partner as possible. But um, I'm trying to go into this conversation without letting my boyfriend know I actively don't like his partner and without setting up ultimatums like you can either choose to hang out with him or me tonight but I'm having trouble thinking of like a good middle ground between the two points, never having to see this man versus having him at my house every single night hanging out.
3: If you and your boyfriend regard each other as your primaries, he's your primary partner, you're his primary partner, and you want to keep this open relationship going and healthy and functional. Well, that rests on a solid foundation of good communication, open and honest communication. And you're going to have to basically Communicate to your partner that you want him to be happy, you want him to have other partners, but you don't enjoy spending time with his boyfriend, with his other partner, and you'd like to limit to as reasonable extent as you possibly can without creating conflict, contact with his Other boyfriend, so you don't want him at the house as often as he's been at the house at the house that you share. It would be better if your boyfriend, when they wanted to spend the night together, hang out and watch a movie or whatever, went to his place. Or if he's going to come over to your place, it's a night when you're going to be out with whoever you might be seeing, or when you have other plans. And it's something that you're going to have to Google Cal it up like the poly people do and schedule so that you can minimize conflict in your primary relationship by minimizing contact with your primary partner's partner that you don't care for.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm taking advice on how to manage entitled, needy, middle-aged men. I'm a woman in her 20s, and I'm looking for a secondary source of unreported income. I'm thinking about sugar dating. I've done it before, and, eh, you know, it was all right. I did my best to reduce risk to my personal safety and privacy. And I didn't terribly mind the sex part. Charming them and talking to them in the hours before or after, however, woof. I've figured out that I was only successful when I pretended to be young, dumb, and impressionable. This means hanging on to every word, laughing at every joke always appearing super impressed by them, their life, their wealth, all that shit. It's like they, they needed admiration and a sympathetic ear even more than they wanted sex. My problem is that kind of ego stroking is tedious. Like, it's just exhausting. So thinking about doing this a second time, you know, I was wondering if you had any advice on how I could minimize conversation time while still making them feel heard and appreciated and desired. I want to be successful at this without losing my goddamn mind.
3: Being a sugar baby is a form of sex work. Literally it's sex work. You were having sex with these men in exchange for money, but it's kind of a girlfriend experience form of sex work where you're having a relationship where somebody is providing you with money, sometimes a great deal of money and you're having sex with them, but you're also spending time with them, going out with them listening to them, affirming them, laughing at their jokes. And the sex didn't bother you, but all of that emotional labor, which was compensated, that you found exhausting. Well, now that you know that, now that you know that the sex isn't a problem, but that emotional labor isn't something that you really are looking forward to having to do again, limit your exposure to that side of it. By seeking an arrangement with somebody who's married and a busy guy, can only hang out once a week or so or less, limiting your exposure to his emotional needs, or seeking someone who's not so emotionally needy or emotionally insecure, isn't looking for that kind of affirmation, and they're out there. It might mean you have to churn through and audition a half a dozen, a dozen guys before you find the guy that you want to be your sugar daddy, whose sugar baby you want to be. There are guys out there who do not need that kind of titter, titter, giggle, laugh. You're so smart. Your money is so impressive. Oh my gosh, you're alive. There are guys out there who are seeking arrangements, as they say, who don't need that. There are many guys out there who are seeking arrangements who do need that. Sounds like you ran into a few of those when you were doing sugar baby work in the past. With a little time and effort, you can find a new arrangement with a guy who requires less on that front, more on the sex front, or requires none of that, and just wants sex and reasonable companionship, who wants to connect with you as a human being, isn't just wanting you to laugh and smile and nod and tell him he's awesome. You can literally put in your ad, I don't laugh at every joke and I don't play dumb. And you will drive off those guys who are seeking just that.
7: Okay, Dan, I need you to tell me if I'm being fucking crazy, okay? So I'm a 36-year-old woman, which I kind of hate saying because I'm about to tell you some super-duper junior high shit. But um, I worked at a bar for a while with this guy, or out with him. He was a customer who used to come in pretty regularly as part of a club. And, you know, he used to come in and flirt with me and, and hit on me, and I used to hate it because I think most women hate being hit on. At work or in any other environment where we can't run away screaming, <laughs> I remember the first time I did it. I don't remember what I said, but I clearly conveyed I was annoyed. He apologized. Said, I'm sorry, I'm not a creep. I just wanted to. I just thought you were really pretty, and I just had to let you know. And I made some generic comment like, "Oh, well, that's nice of you to say." And we moved on with life. And that was it. He just was went into the category of every other fucking guy who thinks I'm into him because I'm being nice while I'm pouring his beer. Um, but the next time he comes back and he keeps going with it, but kind of jokes like, Oh, there's the pretty lady again. Sorry, I'm not a creep. Don't get mad. And we all laugh and it was cute. And he kept doing it and it became a thing that wasn't creepy, just became kind of a joke. And next thing I know, I have this huge, all consuming crush on this man. It's ridiculous. I feel kind of silly having a school girl or a school crush, but whatever, crushes even happen to adults. So I don't, that's not the crazy part. <laughs> the crazy part is I start, I decide I'm going to get a new job. And I decide I'm going to grow a pair and I'm going to just ask him out. I've never asked about a guy in my entire life, but on a million dates, and a million boyfriends, more than I want to say out loud. I've been married the whole nine. I just never do the asking out. And it's not because I'm old fashioned. It's just because, I don't know, I just never have. And I'm going to do it. But then the stars align that I end up getting my new job before I ever see him again. And then that's when I start getting fucking crazy. That's when I start with the... <laughs> the internet stalking, which I know people do now in the age of social media, but I typically don't. I don't do it. So I start fucking stalking the club and trying to find out, you know, next time they're going to meet so I can just show up. <laughs> and we can kind of see each other again and they can be like, oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. And then we can flirt without me being at work. And then I thought, that's fucking crazy, isn't it? <laughs> <All right. laughs> oh. So, you have now taken your innocent little online peeping and you have taken the stalking IRL and that's just fucking nuts, right? And then I tell myself, well, no, it's not. It's not like you're going to his house or anything. But then I just keep thinking like, this has gone too far. You had your chance. You missed it. Just let it go. So, So how crazy am I being? How crazy is it if I just arrange that we accidentally, meet again and pick up where we left off. I think it's kind of crazy. Even if I like ride this crazy train of thought to the end of the line, I still think, so what am I supposed to do if this works out? Like, pretend that I didn't stalk him and orchestrate this whole thing? Like, that's nuts, right? So, tell me how crazy I'm being, please. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Just send him a direct message. You found him on social media. You said, this guy already hit on you. He already expressed an interest in you. So he would most likely be only too happy to hear from you, which means that this isn't quite stalking. This is looking somebody up on social media where somebody puts themselves out there in a venue where they can be looked up and being looked up by somebody that they've already told that they're interested in is probably going to make that person's day. You can also show up at the bar or the club where his club or whatever it is meets at the time when you know it's going to meet because you found his club on social media too. You can engineer an encounter and then let him know that you would like to go out with him. You can hit on him too. But if you don't want to do it face to face, if showing up at that place at that time when his club meets feels a little too stalkery to you, just slide into his DMs. Send him a note. It's a perfectly acceptable thing to do in the social media age. And it's not stalking unless the person tells you to fuck off or isn't interested or you know they're not interested and you slide into their DMs and slide into their DMs and harass them and continue to ask them out when it's clear that they are not interested in you, where you show up all these places where you know that they're going to be because they're putting it out there on social media and your presence is unwelcome and annoying, then it's stalking, then it's harassment. That's not what you're talking about here. This isn't harassment. This is giving somebody the yes they were hoping to get from you the first time they talked with you. Go for it. Slide into his DMs.
8: Hi, Dan. I have a bit of a pickle. There's this one guy on Grindr that I occasionally talk to. He doesn't show his face, but when he does, he's not a bad looking guy. I would say, you know, on the scale, he's probably like a five or a six. But for some reason, he always has this dialogue that's very negative and self-defeating and he's like, I'm ugly and, um, no one wants me. And, um, I can tell that he's made a personality out of it. Um, and, what I noticed with people that call on your show and what you tell them is that you want to leave people better off than when you found them. And I think that really, really hits home for me. And I'm a, I'm a person that does that. Um, and with him, I don't know him. I have no interest in hooking up with him. I have no interest in ever meeting him. Um, but I told him the best I could in regards to, you know, I've been where he was with a broken mind. I I actually, I just told him he's broken. And he just needs to get himself fixed, and he just needs to care enough to do it um, because he's not ugly. Um, and, you know, there's so much to be thankful for, you know, like you have a functioning face with like eyeballs on it and that blink. And there's just so much that you're not, you're, you're taking for granted by going off with this stupid story about yourself. Um, and my question, the reason why I'm calling is this good Samaritan in me that could do this for not only him, but, you know, inspired to do it for so many people it 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 gets turned off in me because this drastic fear comes about. And the fear I'll tell you in his case is like, oh, if you get too close to him, if you try to help him, he's just, you know, like, I, I mean, he knows what you look like. You know, he remembers what you look like. And he'll probably just see you one day in public and you won't remember him. And he'll probably like slit your toes or something. So I, I just get like, I don't know. Like I just sometimes I, when I see people that are, unfortunate or like you know that I could help I don't want to get involved with them because I'm I I'm afraid of the most negative expression on the spectrum manifesting through them versus the positive that I'm seeing being able to manifest so I just sort of wanted to touch on that and sort of see what was what would you recommend as a barometer
3: I got on grinder once on a friend's account just to see what the fuss was about and to like dink around on grinder for a little bit to stay up on what all the kids are doing and in case it was relevant to giving advice here. I got on a friend's Grinder account while he sat there with me. So I didn't say something that might embarrass him. And I instantly got sucked into a conversation with somebody who was miserable, who was complaining about how no one ever paid any attention to him. And being on Grindr was shredding his self-esteem. And I ended up having this long conversation with him about – you know, how, how grinder is a meat market and it's very much appearance driven and it's, you know, better, obviously for people who are conventionally attractive. It can really shred the self-esteem of people who are not conventionally attractive. And I started sending him, you know, queer community groups that he could join places in meat space. He could go and where interactions with others would be, you know, engineered by the, the event, by the, what they were doing, a queer card night, a queer game night, you know, where it's, less about you know the best lit photo of your abs that you could ever possibly take and more about who you are as a person and maybe (laughs) a better option there and i ended up having this like 45 minute conversation with this guy while my friend sat next to me rolling his eyes because that's not what grinder is for but i felt better about myself for having basically talked this person into deleting their grinder account and getting out of the house and away from their fucking computer and getting their nose out of their fucking phone. And I hope that he took my advice. I just shifted into savage love mode at that moment. And I hope he was better for it. You gave this person your best advice. Maybe it's a little harsh, like telling someone they're broken. I wouldn't lead with that expression exactly. But you told this person that he shouldn't disparage himself in this way, that you know, him beating himself up doesn't make him seem more attractive in this venue, and that maybe he should... Embrace and accept him. So you you did it. You already did it. You already said what you could possibly say to this person, and they can act on your advice or not act on your advice. And if they're still on Grinder, sad sacking it up, you're not responsible for that. There's only so much that you, as some random other person on Grinder, can do to help someone who doesn't want to be helped or is seeking negative attention, which is also a thing that people will do on those sites or do in life, seek negative attention, beat themselves up in the hopes that people will rush to them and comfort them. Well, you went to him, you comforted him. You're free. Now you've done what you could reasonably be expected to do. You've gone really above and beyond the call of duty. That's not what grinder is for. And you can block the guy and move on your fears seem a little overblown. You're much more at risk of, you know, inviting some stranger into your house that you connected with on Grindr. <laughs> Nothing. I want to ruin Grindr hookups for you much more at risk of being robbed or murdered or having your throat slit by somebody that you're actually hooking up with. than you are by being recognized in public by somebody who saw your face on Grindr, remembered you as the person who tried to help them and tried to make them feel better about themselves. And then comes up behind you and, the line at McDonald's, let lets your throat. That is not going to happen. But if you're worried about that sort of worst case scenario, disorder, disaster happening, then only put your abs on grinder and not your face.
9: Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. Uh, I'm a uh, straight female in a relationship with a straight male. Uh, we've been together for almost three years. My problem is, in July, I was raped by an ex-boyfriend of mine. I told my boyfriend what happened, but I edited it slightly because I was afraid of how he'd react, but it preyed on me and preyed on me, and I finally, in September, told him the truth, that it wasn't a sexual assault, that it was rape. And he accused me of having had consensual sex and then regretting it and crying rape. Ah, uh, This really hit my mental health hard, and I ended up suicidal and going inpatient treatment uh, for a while. I'm still having therapy, but I don't know what to do about my boyfriend. I don't know if I even still love him after say, what he said to me, but I need him to help with emotional support and day-to-day practicalities because I don't have a license and he takes me places. Public transport where I live is not that great. I don't know what to do. Should I stay or should I go?
3: Someone who said something so unkind, so unfeeling, so cruel that it left you suicidal. Your romantic partner, your boyfriend of three years, someone who could say something like that to you, that was so devastating, isn't someone that you can stay with and trust not to say something similarly devastating in the future? And living in an area with poor public transportation is not a good reason to stay with somebody for 30 or 40 years. Now, when it comes to getting out of a terrible or toxic relationship. And I don't think it's an overstatement to describe a relationship that nearly drove you to suicide as toxic. We do have to take practicalities into consideration. You do have to make a plan to exit that doesn't wind up leaving you on the street or isolated or more vulnerable than you are in the relationship that you're in. It can help, I think, with someone's mental health, if they are trapped in a relationship, in a toxic relationship for a time, to construct that plan to get out of that relationship. That can make enduring what you must endure until you can execute your plan to leave the relationship easier, somewhat easier. So I would encourage you to begin to make that plan Do you have relatives that you can move in with? Do you have family that you can turn to? Do you have friends that you can turn to? Can you – I don't know what kind of job you have or what kind of work that you do. Is there a place where you can go where people with your skill set are in demand and someone who doesn't drive is able to live? Because there's decent public transportation as there is in a city like Chicago – even a decent bus network in a city like Seattle, is there a place that you can move, that you can set your sights on and can be a part of your plan where you can live and live with dignity and be able to cut people out of your life if need be, despite the fact that they have cars and you don't have a license or don't drive or don't have a car yourself. If it comes to that, make that plan, make your escape plan and take what steps you can toward executing that plan toward acting on that plan But I would encourage you to get out of this relationship. If you're able to construct a plan that gets you out of this relationship in a week, I would encourage you to construct that plan. That may mean opening up to friends or family and turning to someone and saying, I need out of this relationship. Can I stay with you? Do you have a room that I can rent? And then go. Get out of this relationship. Honest to God, if the only reason you're seriously contemplating staying with someone whose response to you opening up to them about being raped was that you made it up. The only reason you're contemplating staying with that person is because they have a car and you are dependent on them for lifts. That's a situation where you just ask yourself, how many decades of this could I endure? And the answer to that question, when you put it in that kind of perspective, I can't leave this person, I need a lift, is always I can't stay. You can't stay. You have to go. Begin to make that plan having that plan and taking the steps you can toward executing that plan will help to keep you sane while you're stuck in this relationship, while you are dependent on this person. But you got to get out. You got to go. You got to make your plan. You got to end this relationship.
10: Hi, Dan and Nancy and the tech savvy at-risk youth, 36-year-old bi-female from the East Coast. So For most of my adult life, I've identified as uh, submissive when it came to male partners and quite dominant with females. And actually being asked to top men kind of turned me off. But a few months ago, one of my best friends of uh, three years or so approached me and asked if I would put him in chastity. I was very intrigued and agreed. And we have since been exploring quite a bit, and it is a huge turn-on. So yeah, I highly recommend it if anyone is on the fence and not sure. But this brings me to my question, which is, I can't seem to find a clear recommendation for keeping a man locked in chastity as far as duration goes. I've found quite a bit of literature out there, but it ranges from people talking about having their subs or them themselves being in chastity for months on end. I think I read one guy's uh, review of a chastity device saying that he welded it and threw away the key. So, yeah. And then on the other hand, I'm finding things where, you know, doctors are being interviewed and they're recommending to, to go no more than two days, three days max. So I guess my question is, how frequently should... One, be let out of a chastity device. Uh, The second part of that is, should he be able to come? I do milk his prostate and I do ruin his orgasms, which is a lot of fun. But is there any physiological need for him to actually come? And if so, what's the recommended time that could lapse between those orgasms, if there is such a thing? And lastly, outbreaks. So he has genital herpes and he's had outbreaks in the past. But in conversations with him, we're very open. He did share with me that the frequency of the outbreaks was very minimal. So once or twice, maybe a year. However, in recent months, ever since we've started, you know, chastity play, ever since he's been locked up in a cage, uh, this is now the third outbreak that he's gotten in the last four months. So does it have anything to do with being in chastity? And is there anything I should be doing to maybe help uh, minimize the frequency of outbreaks or help ease them I do let him out when there is an outbreak so again is that something that should be done or if it's all sanitary and he's taking medication and he's showering he should be able to stay in a cage while he's having an outbreak um yeah a lot of questions to do with dicks and cages
3: Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Doctor Ashley Winter, board-certified urologist, sexual medicine specialist, and co-host of the Full Release Podcast. Hey, Doctor Winter, how are you?
0: I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: So, are you familiar with male chastity devices, also known as cock cages? Have you ever encountered one at work on a patient?
0: I personally, <laughs> I personally have never encountered one in work, but I will say, in our podcast, we've definitely had people call in and ask about them before. So it is something in my um, extracurricular research that I have explored, or, or you know, done some done some reading on.
3: So for people yeah. who aren't familiar with male chastity devices, they're sort of like little tubes you put your dick in that lock uh, around the base of the balls. There's a ring that goes along around the balls. You know, there are ones that are more sort of restrictive uh, and tighter than others. Uh, But you wear them on your your dick and it makes erections uh, impossible or painful, uh, one or the other. Some people can basically remove them at will. Other people find that they can't. And people who are really committed to wearing cock cages that are not removable unless the person who has the key removes it for them will get a Prince Albert piercing, a piercing through the head of the dick that then they can lock to the cock cage and it makes Mm. it impossible to remove. So in your research, Dr. Winter, what is the consensus out there? I'm sure the... NHS or the CDC hasn't actually plowed a lot of money into this field. But what's the consensus around how long it's safe for a man to wear, or a penis haver, to wear a cock cage and keep his cock locked up like that?
0: Yeah, a fantastic question. And as you uh, surmised, there is essentially no actual research on this, and everything is speculative and anecdotal. So, on the one hand, you know, you may have somebody. healthcare professional saying, absolutely don't do this. And then on the other hand, somebody who's, you know, incorporated into their sexual life very successfully and, you know, is a proponent of it. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you're probably hearing those voices the loudest. And, you know, if you look at it, there's 0% literature out there where let's say they took a 100 men and randomized half of them to wearing a cock cage and the other half to not, because if they had That would be the only way we truly know, you know, what is the physiologic effect, or is there any kind of long-term harm associated with wearing one of these? Right. So, so fundamentally, we don't.
3: We don't know, and we can't do that kind of randomized test. You're not going to get a hundred. College students <laughs> to sure. volunteer for fifty of them to have their cocks locked up at random for an extended period of time, but you know, knowing what we know about those tissues, about you know, erectile tissues, one of the sort of thrills of a cock cage is it makes it impossible to get an erection or painful to get an erection. Someone will wear one twenty four hours a day. Men get spontaneous erections in their sleep, sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes randomly yeah. on the bus or in the back of big yellow cabs. And what is you know? knowing what you know about those tissues is that a good idea or a bad idea when you're having a spontaneous erection or an induced erection if you know you're with a dom who wants you to get hard because they know it's going to be painful for you to have that those tissues constricted yeah. like that while you're getting hard
0: so, so you brought up an excellent point particularly the aspect about having uh, nocturnal erections right so if you look at the average male, and actually average female, and you look at their sleep cycle when they're in what we call the REM sleep phase, it's typical to get about three to five erections per night. And actually, a clitoris will also have nocturnal clitoral tumescence, side note. But anyway, there's, of course, surmise that whether or not you're you know, sexually active, either with your hand or a partner, um, that you are still the average person deriving a health benefit from having erections that you are not necessarily aware of. So, you know, on a true level, what is the danger of not having that? And it's hard to parse that out. And I would say the best way to model what the physical effect would be, is from uh, instances where they look at men after they've had their prostate removed from prostate cancer because then you have an induced state of sudden lack of erections, right, during the day and at nighttime. And you can take men who previously had a normal erection and at a very discreet time point took away their erections. Now, there are some studies where when they take men after prostate surgery, right, and they have them give themselves erections with an injectable medication and Mm -hmm. they have the other half not do that, what you actually see is that men who are exposing themselves to erections versus those who are not have a much faster um, and higher rate of returning to normal erectile function. With the point being that, yes, you probably should just have erections and you could potentially derive some long term damage from not having them. Now, you know, in terms of the actual frequency of that, that would be you know, safe to take it off. Probably hard to say. Uh, You know, in my mind, it seems kind of like a sliding scale thing, like nocturnal erections or your penis going to the gym. You know, if you go to the gym one day a week, you're probably going to be less fit than if you go to the gym every day and the normal penis is going to the gym every day. So Mm -hmm. for every night, whatever, (laughs) you know, so probably not the healthiest thing. Now that said, should that imply that, you know, people shouldn't be using these devices? I think if you understand, you know, the basis that it may lead to some long-term damage, and you understand that and you accept that risk, you know, then it, of course it's your, you know, prerogative to, to go ahead and do that as an adult. And
3: Right. Our know. bodies are ours to use and mm-hmm. ours to use up. And people do all sorts of things that <laughs> yeah. that carry some potential for long-term damage or risk. And usually we're fine with that. You know, people go snowboarding and skiing and some people rip out their Achilles tendons or damage their knees right. permanently. And everyone's like, well, yeah, but skiing is fun. But when anybody you know, risks anything for sex, people are like, you're a crazy sex monster and you shouldn't have done that. And how yeah. irrational and stupid you were to prioritize your sexual pleasure as opposed to your pleasure hurtling down a mountain on a, two plastic sticks.
0: Yeah. Every time I eat a candy bar, I know it's not good for me and I enjoy it, but you're right. We, we take sexual activity and we kind of put it in this separate zone where we're not allowed to do things that aren't good for us, uh, much more so than with any other you know, a- aspect of, of uh, physical experiences. Uh,
3: I wanted to emphasize something that you said, that, you know, there's not a lot of research. There haven't been double-blind studies. Uh, there's just a kind of a mountain of anecdotal evidence, and the popularity of cock cages and male chastity play has really boomed in the last 10 years. And there's a lot of... You know, in mixed in with the anecdotal data, which are just people telling their stories, there's going to be bullshit online. There are going to be people fantasizing. There will be people who say, as the caller mentioned, that, you know, they got this cock cage and they welded it shut and threw away the key. I promise you, maybe there's like one or two people out there who've done that. uh, But there are many, many more people out there who've... are claiming they did that because it's exciting for them to think that somebody believes they did that.
0: No, for anybody on the planet who's ever worn a cast, your skin gets itchy. Like, I don't think you would ever want to weld something onto yourself and throw away the key for all time because you're just like, (laughs) there's just basic discomfort associated with that, but
3: you're going to chafe.
0: Right. You're going to chafe. In my mind, the the urologist approved chastity advice would be like, um, you know when uh, Justin Timberlake had like his dick in a box on SNL? Um,
3: <laughs> that would be way the, back when. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah. Like you can't access it, but his breathing room. You know, like unfortunately, you can't walk around outside. In, you know, in normal polite society, with your dick in a box. But but if you could, I would I would give a big thumbs up for that.
3: Okay, <laughs> so let's rattle through some of her questions quickly. You know, how frequently, if they are doing this chastity play, would you recommend as a board-certified urologist, that she let his dick out. And how often should he be allowed to come? And this gets into a whole other area. It's not about tissue, not about tissue damage, not about a constricted erection. Uh, If she's doing orgasm control and denying him orgasms uh, for extended period of times, there's a health risk there that many people aren't aware of, isn't there?
0: In terms of uh, restricting orgasms.
3: In, In terms of not having orgasms. Men who don't have orgasms, men who don't ejaculate on a regular basis, aren't they at higher risk of prostate cancer?
0: That is a great point. And that is actually a very compelling study It published in a very good journal. And if you look at the study, it basically looked at over 30,000 men followed over 30 years. And they did show definitively that if you ejaculate more than, if you ejaculate more, you have a lower risk of prostate cancer. Now, if you hone in on what their actual numbers were, okay, they were comparing men who ejaculated more than twenty-one times a month to men who ejaculated between four and seven times a month. And the actual reduction in incidence of prostate cancer was about two cases per thousand person years. Meaning if you followed a thousand guys for a year, uh, you know, there would be two more cases than the guys who weren't ejaculating all the time. Now
3: but but still, you're going to want to err on the side of coming all the time. I look at that and I think, okay, I'm just I'm just going to take that tiny bit that tiny risk and keep doing what I'm doing, which is coming a lot, just to be on the safe side.
0: Coming a lot is good for you, like no doubt, stress relief. It's fun. If you are having sex, it's cardiovascular exercise, definitive health benefits. What I would err away from saying is, you know, I don't want people who are neurotic, for example, my fiance to start thinking that they have to mandatorily ejaculate every day uh, for their cancer benefit, you know, but, but this is the total
3: opposite end <laughs> of that spectrum. Well, hopefully your, your fiance won't hear this episode. Uh, really quickly, this person's last question, uh, her partner that she's now keeping locked up, she's milking his prostate, uh, she's letting him out every once in a while. She should probably let him come every once in a while just to be on the safe side. Uh, but uh, he's got herpes and he used to have one or two outbreaks a year. And now he's had three in four months. Is there something about his cock being locked up in this sweaty, perhaps, cock cage that is uh, leading to more outbreaks of uh, of herpes? Could that be a contributing factor?
0: It is a really interesting question. And if you think of the basis for herpes reactivation, right, it's very extremely low that you're having a reinfection, but more so that actually the nerve in, in your pelvis that goes to that specific area of your skin is that has contains dormant virus and that's actually being reactivated. And typically it has less to do with the milieu on your genitals and more to do with um, things that would, let's say, lower the, the immune threshold to allow that to reactivate. Meaning if you're stressed out, if you're not sleeping enough, if you're partying all night, you know, certain things that are kind of inducing that stress response, generally that would lead to more reactivation. So, You know, in my mind, what I am hearing here is possibly that he is so upregulated in terms of his excitement that perhaps he's higher cortisol levels and stress hormone. And perhaps, even though it's a good stress, right? It's the same stress you might have on like a roller coaster or scary movie, he wants it, that possibly it's leading to some sort of reactivation. But again, it's a hypothesis. You know, if he wants to, you know, let's say, have a number of these devices and make sure they're well cleaned and rotate them out, they can see if that helps, uh, you know, I, I tend to think it would be less likely to do so. And I would agree with the caller's statement of leaving the thing off when he's having an outbreak because it's just going to hurt. So yeah,
3: yeah obviously, is. leave it off when you're having an outbreak. Uh, Ashley, can we keep you around for one more yeah. question? Hey, Dan, um, I have a
11: question about, I guess it would be like aggressive power bottoms. I have a friend who I see every few months and we have really great sex. But this last time I saw him, it wasn't really good sex because he's into something new, which I don't really enjoy. And he likes to ride, like sit on me and ride me. But when he does it, he just wiggles around a lot. And I assuming it's like hitting something inside and feels good for him. But what it feels like for me is he's just wiggling around a lot. And like my dick will get bent and sometimes it'll like hurt and make me lose my erection, And it just doesn't really feel good. And to a certain degree, I just go with it because I know it's feeling good for him, but it's like, there's no rhythm to it. It's really jerky and it, it it hurts and it's not sexy for me. And I, I totally agree that sometimes you go along with things for your sex partner, for their enjoyment, totally down with that, but it like hurts. It's like bending my dick because he's wiggling around so much without hurting his feelings. How do I either express that I'm not enjoying it or is there something like a person in my position can do like some way to like chill my mind out or something. I don't know. I I don't want to hurt my friend's feelings and I want to continue sharing our time together because it's fun when I see them, but this is not cool. I don't like it.
3: Ashley, Dr. Winter, I'm concerned about the fact that this guy is putting up with this painful sex that's bending his dick, seemingly unawares that you can break a dick, can't you? You can bend a dick so badly that it snaps.
0: Yes, you can definitely break a dick. I have seen many broken dicks. I have fixed many broken dicks. And uh, he should not be putting up with this. You know, sex sex should hurt when you want it to and never hurt when you don't want it to. You have the right to that and uh you know typically when you think about people who come in with broken penises it is that they had a partner who their penis came out of the orifice in entirety and then there was some sort of crashing down let's say on the buttocks or other area uh that said if this guy is doing you know aggressive 90 degree torques while you know he's Riding him, I, I I suppose it would be possible for him to, to break the guy's penis.
3: What is like physiologically? What is a broken dick? Like what happens when somebody breaks their dick, and what does a broken dick look like? What's the recovery like, and how do you fix it?
0: Oh, so many qu- good questions. Okay, <laughs> so your penis becomes hard because you have uh, this these two corporate cavernosa, whatever. They fill with blood, and they have a limited. Ex- expandability. And when you max out that expandability, then they're super hard, full of blood, right? Mm -hmm. When you apply a severe force to something in that situation, then you can tear the lining of that limited expandable space, right? So you're basically just tearing the lining of your erectile body. And what that looks like, typically the symptoms you describe would be Uh, sudden loss of erection painful popping or snapping sound and usually because you're tearing that blood-filled compartment you're going to either see bruising under the skin or you're going to see blood coming out of your urethra okay which is really terrifying when somebody says that they you know were having sex and then suddenly they started spurting blood out of their urethra which is definitely can happen so if for some reason that happens to you, you should seek out medical attention, I would typically recommend you go to the emergency room right away. And if it happens to you, also don't eat or drink anything because you may need surgery to fix that. And so the way, you know, a surgery done to repair a penile fracture, basically you pull down the skin over the penis, uh-huh. you find the hole where you're bleeding from, you sew it closed, and then you pull the skin back up. Now. I know that sounds horrible, but I would recommend if you think you broke the penis that you go and do that because otherwise it can lead to long term consequences like erectile dysfunction if you
3: don't get it fixed. I'm totally worst case scenario disordering this question because the odds, you know, with some guy sitting on some other guy's dick and just grinding away, the odds that he's going to snap his dick in half are really low unless he's got some sort of miracle yes. butt. Uh, so, what's really at yes. issue here is the fact that <laughs> you're the caller, you caller, you're enduring painful sex that you don't enjoy uh, for the wrong reasons. You, you know, sometimes you you, know, you give a blowjob at a certain point, some, a blowjob is work, but you know your partner's close and you're uncomfortable, but you don't want to break their rhythm and, and you just like you endure and you get through it for their pleasure and it's worth it for you. But if your partner is doing something to take pleasure from you and it is uncomfortable and hurts you. Speak the fuck up even at risk of hurting of their feelings. If your partner's feelings are hurt because you said this is causing me physical pain and it's causing me to lose my erection and they make that about them. Like they have an owie. They have a feeling you hurt their feelings yeah. because you just didn't shut up and suffer. That's no one you want to keep having sex with. So fuck your partner's feelings in an instance like that. Just speak <laughs> your truth. Hey, this position doesn't work for me. This is uncomfortable. This hurts my dick.
0: Yeah, and I will, in terms of honing in on the finer points of the medical aspect of this, there is a hypothesis that what you call a penile microtrauma, so not ending up in the ER with eggplant shaped penis, but this ouchy, ouchy, bendy thing that's not breaking your penis, can actually also lead to long term health effects. So there's some hypothesis, for example, that what we call Peyroni's disease or a vent erection. Is actually the aggregation over time of penile microtraumas. We don't really know if that's true, but the point being that you might actually also have some legitimate health effects from something that hurting your penis, but you know, not sending you to the ER.
3: So, caller, err on the side of speaking up. Err on the side of moving into a new position and asking your partner maybe to adjust his grind. Maybe there's a, a slightly different angle of grind that wouldn't be painful for your dick. But say something. Use your words. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Ashley Winter, board-certified urologist, sexual medicine specialist, co-host of the terrific and hilariously funny full-release podcast. Thank you for jumping on the phone today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
12: Hey, Dan. Magnum subscriber here. Love the podcast. Thanks for all the work that you do. Um, Married straight male, 41, living in Texas. My wife and I have been married for about four months and together for almost five years. We have four children, two from my previous marriage, and two from hers. Our relationship has been amazingly healing for us both. She has been kind and loving towards me, and I dare say I've been a great partner to her. We've been exploring the intentional use of psychedelics for a few years together, and it's been a huge growth opportunity for both of us. My wife is getting her master's in psychology and plans to incorporate this into a practice after she graduates which brings me to my question. We've all had to stretch to fit grad school, kids paying the bills and the general hustle of life. Uh, For example, this weekend, she attended a conference on psychedelic studies the same weekend as her cousin's wedding, whom I barely know. I took our kids to the wedding to represent our family and to give well wishes for my wife. She attended this conference by chance with her old friend and one-time lover. They were best friends growing up and tried out being lovers shortly before her and I started dating. In that time, he was pretty much a jerk to her by her account. He had kind of a 50s husband mentality and subscribed to the men's rights ideology. She is a staunch feminist. In the first year of our relationship, I encouraged her to attend the big women's march on Washington when our current ass hat was elected, watching her kids and taking care of the house while she went. Anyway, her friend has been using psychedelics to dive in and grow. He's changed and has apologized to her. She's glad he's back in her life and they've been occasionally getting lunch together, hanging out, and they are with each other all weekend at this conference. She called me today to see how I felt about her taking a trip into the Amazon with this friend as part of a group for psychedelic studies. She says that there aren't sexual motivations, but admits to it being complicated and that there's a place in her heart for this man with whom she shares so much history. I'm all torn up about it. I fully support her growth. I support, or I suppose I have some sort of veto right here, but do I want to use it as her life partner? I don't want to make any decisions for her. What would be the point of asking her not to go? If she has romantic and sexual feelings towards this man, which I believe in my bones to be true, that's for her to figure out and not for me to police. On the other hand, it breaks my heart to think of her with another man. I wasn't built for open relationships. She brought it up on one of her first dates, and I said that it wasn't for me. We agreed to be monogamous, not under duress, but as a matter of fact situation at the beginning, price of admission. Our sex life was once amazing, but has dwindled in the last year. When we do make love, I take care to see that she comes almost every time. We've discussed our waning sex life and have both stated that we feel satisfied and that familiarity and general life busyness have burned down the spark. But we're both content for now as we get through this busy time. I feel a little used here. I feel abandoned and I feel bad for wanting her to be all mine. Like it's just not really fair. I Dan. What should I do?
3: Honestly, don't know what to tell you to do. Tell her she can't go to the Amazon with this guy to collect psychedelics and she's going to resent you. And that resentment may make your already waning sex life even wanier, even worse, stirring resentment into a long-term relationship where the spark is being smothered by the stresses of daily life. Doesn't revive the spark, typically. And if this is an amazing once-in-a-lifetime experience that she could have, if you allowed her to go, and the only reason you're not allowing her to go is because you're afraid she's going to fuck this guy, I don't see how that improves anything. There is that risk of resentment. However, letting her go means there's a risk she's going to be inspired to fuck this guy if she hasn't already fucked him over the weekend they already spent together at the conference that she went to. It sounds to me like you make a lot of space in your marriage uh, to accommodate your wife's desire to get out there in the world, to go to the Women's March, to go to this conference while you take care of the kids. And I hope that your wife is extending to you the same kind of consideration. I hope that you are – Getting at least as much out of this and at least as much consideration and compassion as you're extending to your wife. Your wife, who, when you started dating five years ago, brought up open relationships and floated the idea, perhaps her preference for an open relationship. And you asserted then, as is your right, that monogamy was a deal breaker for you, and she agreed to be monogamous. You know, I don't want to pour poison in your ear, but it seems to me that you need to have that conversation with your wife again about what it is she wants and what it is she's doing or planning to do. Because if you are still adamant about monogamy and she has not yet cheated on you, putting herself in an environment where she may be tempted to cheat on you could imperil your marriage of four months, your relationship of five years. And she needs to be honest with you about whether she wants to fuck this guy and whether that's part of what this trip is about. And if that's part of what this trip is about, and if infidelity would be a relationship extinction level event for you, if it would end your marriage, she needs to understand that. And she needs to avoid temptation lest she blow up her marriage and the home that she has with you created for her children and your children. I would also challenge you to revisit your feelings about monogamy, to ask yourself what's more important, the relationship, the marriage, your family, or your wife never touching anybody else's penis ever again over the next however many decades you're both going to be alive. Personally, of course, I think that marriage and family and what two people build together is more important than one person or both partners never touching anybody else with their genitals ever again over the course of the long decades they're going to spend together. But I'm not you, and you get to decide what it is that you want and need in a relationship. And if you want monogamy more than you want her, well. Maybe you shouldn't have gotten into this relationship five years ago when she made it clear to you that monogamy wasn't something that she felt as strongly about or felt differently about than you'd feel. But here you are five years later, five years and four months into this relationship. Here you are. And there are some difficult questions that she's going to have to answer, but there's also some difficult questions you're going to have to ask yourself. As I frequently like to say, if you're with somebody for 30 or 40 or 50 years and they only cheated on you once or twice, they were pretty good at monogamy. If she is with you for 30 or 40 years and fucked some other guy one time on a trip to the Amazon, is that something that when you weigh the totality of your life together and your commitment and your emotional entanglement and the family that you've built together, is that something that you can get past or forgive or put in perspective? I would hope so. As a listener, I would certainly hope so. But if it's not, if you're one of those people, and you know, sometimes I think you're probably in the majority of one of those people that this is unforgivable. This kind of betrayal is unforgivable. And if it's a deal breaker for you, if it really is, she needs to understand that before she goes to the Amazon with this guy that she used to have sex with. And if she's still tempted to have sex with this guy and it could explode her marriage and her life, then she probably shouldn't go to the Amazon with this guy. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. At Earbox Tweets, hey, fake Dan Savage, ambisextrous as a term is new. It dates to at least 1928 when it was used by Joseph Moncure March to describe a character in The Wild Party. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you for that correction and that clarification and that fascinating information. I actually read The Wild Party in college. I clearly need to pick it up and read it again. And as I always like to say, I learn as much from my listeners and readers as I hope they learn from me. Nick Wanserski tweets I listened to the opening commentary for episode 683 of The Savage Lovecast, where you discussed squirrels and their lack of a kink lifestyle. It made me sad enough that I had to envision a better world for the little varmints. And then Nick encloses, and I usually wouldn't read a tweet that has a visual component, but he did an illustration. He did a comic of a squirrel in fetish gear. You are definitely going to want to look up Nick Wanserski's tweet. I retweeted it. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage, and you can find Nick's tweet in my feed. It is really cute. And finally, John Enquist tweets Did I just hear Queen Elizabeth paraphrase at Fake Dan Savage? talking about Princess Margaret and her hubby doing whatever they needed to do to stay happy and stay sane in marriage. Season three, episode 10 of The Crown Netflix. No idea Savage Lovecast have been running for that long. All right. If you want me to read one of your tweets on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls.
13: So this is a call about uh, the guy in episode 684 who went on a date and felt fireworks and then uh, the gal he went on a date with wasn't interested. Um, I really like the advice that you gave, Dan, but I wanted to say one thing from a female perspective, and that is thank you for the level of respect to this guy. He is not turning into what we've seen so much of these days of these guys who get rejected and then feel like they have a right to demand something. He is caring about not hurting her in the future. The fact that he's aware that he might end up being manipulative in this friendship by virtue of still caring for her is a huge thing. And I think as long as he is able to relay that when he explains to the woman that he doesn't want to be friends, that it should work out. Okay. And if it doesn't, well, then you definitely want to stay away from her.
1: Hey, Dan, I have a wording suggestion for anybody who uh, like that caller from a few episodes ago might be reaching out to somebody uh, about a sexual encounter they had where they worried that the other person might feel violated or that there wasn't uh, the consent that there needed to be. Uh, You should reach out and say, Hey, It's been a while. I hope it's okay to contact you. I have an apology that I'd like to offer you about some of the things that went down between us. If you would like to hear it, let me know. And if you wouldn't, that's okay too, and I won't contact you again. It's much better than just saying, hey, can we talk? Or sending them an email with lots of details about an event that might be potentially triggering. It gives them a little bit of heads up what might be coming down the pipeline, and it gives them some choice in whether they want to engage in that or not.
12: I'm calling about uh, episode 684 and the woman with the uh, very girthy, girthy boyfriend. This may not be advice that you saw coming, but um, take some uh, some lessons from us fisters of the world. Buy a range of toys, start out small, and uh, eventually, you know, work those in and work that pussy up to uh, about the size of his dick. You'll actually get there. Now, he'll probably still have to use a couple toys on you each time you have sex because, uh, doesn't just slide right in after that. But yeah, follow the fisters of the world. Buy toys. Build up.
3: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can also, and we actually much prefer when you do, use the Voice Memo app on your phone and email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Again, the Showtime documentary series Couples Therapy is coming back for a second season. If you and your partner might be interested in appearing in season two of Couples Therapy, go to CouplesTherapyDocumentary.com. Just takes a minute to apply. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Ashley Winter on Twitter at Ashley G Winter. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartounian and me and the tech savvy at Risky and Nancy. We'll both be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.